Welcome to the podcast version of Sunday Miscellany, which differs from the radio version for rights reasons. We hope you enjoy the programme. When William Butler Yeats was born in Sandymount in Dublin on the 13th of June 1865, he was an unusually dark and olive-skinned baby. The doctor who delivered him, however, reassured his mother, saying that he could be left out all night on the windowsill and it would do him no harm. (laughs) While studying law at the Irish Bar, the poet's father, John Butler Yeats, had visited George Pollockston, a friend of his school days who lived in Sligo, where John Yeats also had aunts and uncles born in the rectory in Drumcliff. It was on this visit he met and later went on to marry George's dark-haired, 21-year-old sister, Susan Mary Pollockston, saying that he had married into the family because of their genius for being dismal. (laughs) Socially, the Pollockstons were hard-working, unionist and Protestant. Yet they considered themselves above the ordinary run of Protestant farmers and shopkeepers of Sligo, while ranked below the big house Anglo-Irish families such as the Gore Boots of Lissadell. W.B. Yeats would be 29 years old before he was asked by Sir Henry Gore Booth, his wife and two daughters, Constance and Eva, to visit Lissadell in November 1894 on the strength of his reputation as a poet. In his autobiography, Yeats writes, We were merchant people of the town. No matter how rich we grew, no matter how many thousands a year our mills or our ships brought in, we could never be country. We would meet on grand juries, those people in the great houses, Lissadell amongst its woods, Hazelwood House by the lake's edge, and Marcree Castle encircled by wood after wood. But the long-settled habit of Irish life set up a wall. Even so, these great houses exercised a powerful hold over his imagination as embodiments of order and labour, where all outward things were an image of an inner life. And 30 years later in Seville, Yeats recalled the light of evening, Lissadell, great windows open to the south, two girls in silk kimonos, both beautiful, one a gazelle. On account of their father's hand-to-mouth existence, however, the first Ten years in the lives of the Yeats children were mostly spent in Sligo with their mother's people, the Pollocksfans, and their near relations, the Middletons. At that time, in the 1870s, Sligo Quayside had fleets of ships queuing up to dock and unload produce from Europe and America, and the young poet watched the Pollocksfan and Middleton Shipping Company steamers coming and going with great pride. He was treated with uh, deference by the dockhands, sailors and pilots who worked for his grandfather and to his embarrassment as a teenager, hugged on sight by the fishwives who'd known him since he was a baby. A ship's carpenter made and repaired toy boats for him. 
And coming back from London as a schoolboy, Willie Yates would make the journey from Clarence Basin in Liverpool to Sligo on one of his grandfather's vessels, either the SS Sligo or the SS Liverpool, where he practised walking like a sailor, even though he was prone to seasickness on the 30-hour crossing. On arrival at the Sligo Quayside, he was met by servants waiting to take him to his grandfather's substantial home at Merville, overlooked by Knocknaray, that cairn-heaped grassy hill where passionate Maeve is stony still. And he was free between mealtimes to wander amongst the fairy folk haunted dolmens of Caramore and the evocative oath that the broad noon had never lit In his reveries over childhood and youth, Yeats also tells how he had a cousin called George Middleton in Ballisadare, and together they visited a great salmon weir, rapids and waterfall, and it was here too that he heard a snatch of the song that he made into Down by the Sally Gardens. Though it was more often at Ross's he joined his cousins where they rode the river mouth, or were taken sailing in a heavy, slow schooner yacht, or in a big ship's boat that had been rigged and decked. It is a picture that reminds us how the dandified poet in the salons of London, and later the celebrated poet in the drawing rooms of the great, whose love of the local grew into a wider and deeper cultural nationalism, had, in fact, a freewheeling, Outdoor childhood filled with boats and ponies and tall tales of smugglers' ghosts and fairy lore and the heroic mythical past, such as the pursuit of the lovers Jermud and Gráinne on the slopes of Ben Bulban overlooking us here in Drumcliff. And it was here, surely, that his earliest visions began of how the Ireland of his day could be transformed and uplifted by imagination and industrious effort, a combination of the high-mindedness of the Yeatses and the hard-headedness of the Pollocksons, as each vision shaped by the poet, the dramatist, and the man of letters outgrew and renewed itself in the way the wild broom growing on the slopes of Knocknaray burst its pods, and dispersed its seeds in the sun of the poet's long-ago childhood summers in Sligo. life, Yeats wrote that a poet is never the bundle of accident and incoherence that sits down to breakfast. He has been reborn as an idea, something intended, complete. As I look back on my own life, it seems to me that the opposition between these two things, 
bundle of accident versus something intended isn't quite right. For me, the truth is something between them. By some accident, much of my life bears the imprint of this great writer. And there's some intention, some reason also, why I chose what Yeats would call my own destiny. That phrase about sitting down to breakfast always resonates with me, too. It brings up the table where I sat in the mornings when I was a girl in my family's home in North Carolina and later in North Florida. It makes me smile to think that my own bundle of accident and incoherence includes a big helping of Yates with my grits and eggs. I also ate a lot of porridge and rashers in the many summers we came to Sligo and Dublin. I live in Ireland now, a lucky chance for a scholar of Yeats, or for anyone for that matter. This past month, I've been traveling in the States. A few weeks ago, I was in Tallahassee, Florida, where my parents lived and where my sister Chris still lives. She and I sorted through and packed up the final few of my parents' photographs and papers. We found a scrapbook that my mother put together on a family trip to Sligo in 1967 when my father lectured at the Yates Summer School here. We read my mother's trip journal and looked at photographs and clippings from when my parents had recently met and were cementing a friendship with Michael and Gronya Yates, who were W.B. and George Yates's son and daughter-in-law. Michael and his sister Anne asked my father to help them manage the huge bulk of manuscripts documenting Yates's deep involvement in the occult, which they had inherited upon their mother's death in 1968. That decision was the start of two generations of the scholarly work of my family. My father's library was full of Yeatsiana, including a filing cabinet full of photocopies of all the automatic script produced by the Yeatses working together mediumistically over years, beginning on their honeymoon in 1917. Automatic writing is a mild form of mediumship, a person empties her mind, puts pen to a blank piece of paper, and waits to see if writing will come from somewhere beyond conscious thought. In their automatic experiments, the Yeatses conducted years of mysterious conversations with spiritual communicators who came through George Yeats's hand. He asked questions she wrote down answers, and they produced an elaborate system, a theory explaining life, the cosmos, history, and life after death, among many other topics. Yeats wrote it all out in a book, A Vision, which he finished in 1925 and then obsessively rewrote until the late 1930s. That system lies behind some of his most famous late poems and plays, 
Poems like Lita and the Swan and the Second Coming, plays like The Only Jealousy of Emer and Calvary. While I was growing up, my parents were doing this work. They put thousands of manuscript pages in order, collated questions with automatic writing answers, and tried to work out what it all meant. My father deciphered Yeats's terrible handwriting. My mother typed up transcriptions. My sister and I helped. When I look through the materials now, memories come with a rush of all of us in the study, southern sun coming through the windows. So it was an accident that I was so lucky Not every scholar gets to learn her trade as an apprentice to her own parents. At any rate, by the time I was finishing my Ph.D., I was utterly hooked. And since then, the Yeats' occult work has been a large part of my research. As I think about it, though, those breakfasts and the family life they represent are at the bottom of it. When I got in my hands the first copy of the edition of the 1937 A Vision that I've just finished this past May with the scholar Catherine Paul, the last of many editions over the years, it occurred to me that this particular book was the end of a road that began when I was a little girl eating accidental breakfasts and finding my own intentions along the way. A little north of the town of Sligo, on the southern side of Ben Bulban, some hundreds of feet above the plain, Yeats once wrote, is a small white square on the limestone. No mortal has ever touched it with his hand. No sheep or goat has ever grazed grass beside it. In the middle of the night, it swings open, and the unearthly troop rushes out. All night... The gay rabble sweep to and fro across the land. Sometimes a new-wed bride or a newborn baby goes with them into the mountain. I have not seen the fairy host sweep from Yates' door in Ben Bulban, nor have I looked for them. But I know the place where the fairies come and go in Mullochmore. Did Yates' she visit their kin at Mullochmore's Mullinishi, the fairy rock heard under Classy Bawn? I'm sure they did. Perhaps they still do. Like me, the great poet was a believer. He laid store by Socrates' judgment when he was giving a learned opinion about a nymph of the Illysses. To be curious about that which is not my business, while I am still in ignorance of my own self, would be ridiculous. The common opinion is enough for me. A Mullochmore fishing boat was once feared lost following a great disaster 
across the bay in Brooklyn, County Donegal. Villagers lined the shore each day, anxiously scanning the sea for sight of the absent boat. By night, they lit fires on the cliffs to guide the fishermen home. We can only imagine the jubilation of the watchers when the Moloch boat was eventually sighted, beating against the wind and waves, torturously making her way across the water. Watchers lining the shore counted seven men on the boat as she sped along the coast behind the hill known as Molanathishi. They were relieved to see that everyone was safe, but surprised to see a woman sitting at the tiller alongside the skipper. When they went to help the fishermen draw their boat to safety, they found only seven men, but no woman. The fishermen shook their heads when they were asked about the stranger on board. No, there were only seven men on the boat at any time. There must be some mistake. No, there was no woman. The inquirers shook their heads in disbelief. Sure hadn't the whole village seen her clearly with their own eyes as the boat went by the headland. Following the incident, villagers, discussing the strange visitation, speculated that the woman they saw in the boat was perhaps a woman of the she who took the boat and crew under her protection. The story has another curious twist. Sometime after this extraordinary deliverance, the fishermen and their relations made a pilgrimage to Mullanishi. There, on top of the hill, they left a wee crockery jar of whiskey in thanksgiving. Why? There was no church there. To whom or what was the offering made? To admit to a belief in fairies is to invite, at best amusement, at worst ridicule. The search for evidence is made all the more difficult by their reclusiveness. Once when Yeats had recourse to a medium to establish contact with them, the answer came back on a piece of paper. Be careful and do not seek to know too much about us. Who is there that could ignore such a warning? Oh, that was a regular thing long ago, an old man of the village told me. Queer things happened there, he went on. There was this fellow one time delivering a keg of putching to Classy Bon. It was a nice day, and he was taking his time. When he was going up past Mullinashi, he sauntered over to the fairy entrance to have a closer look at it. Didn't he get an awful hop when he heard a voice out of the darkness? Psst! Give us a drop of what you have there in the keg with you. <laughs> he jumped back and made for Classy Bon as quick as he could. Before he got to the top of the avenue, didn't the keg fall and smash on the ground? As the precious liquid spilled away, he swore afterwards he heard a voice hissing, that's the stuff for him. <laughs> Thomas took a long pull out of his pipe. Looking at me quietly for a minute, he ventured an opinion. Don't you think he'd be as well if he had to take the cork off it and give them a taste, he said ruefully. I'm thinking if he had, he'd still have the putching. the mouth 
Love comes in at the eye. That's all we shall know for truth before we grow old and die. I was a Trinity student, already fascinated by the Sligo I had visited as a teenager and enthralled by the poetry of Yeats and the story of the Irish literary revival. My first visit to Sligo had included an outing to the Lake Isle of Inishfree. When I recalled the poem I had learned at school, now suddenly in context, in a new light. As I knew nothing of the poet, I called in to the local library to inquire if they had anything about W.B. Yeats. Nora Nyland, the famous librarian who did so much to honour the poet in the place he called home, showed me the books about him and paintings by Jack B. Yeats that she had collected, and I was captivated. From now on, Yeats and his family became my great interest. I could not believe it, therefore, when the notice went up on the college notice board stating that Dr. T.R. Hen of Cambridge University would be leading the Yates Centenary celebrations and residing in the college from January to June of 1965. Very soon I was attending all of his lectures and tutorial groups and little else, which soon led to a warning from my tutor that such single-minded enthusiasm for Yeats might cost me my degree. But I knew that it would be worth it, no matter what the outcome. Dr. Hedden was then the director of the Yeats Summer School in Sligo, and he suggested that I might apply for a scholarship. And with that award, I set out to Sligo for the Sixth International Summer School. Accommodation for students was provided in Sligo Grammar and High School at the pretty reasonable rate of six guineas for the two weeks. So on arrival, I moved into a large dormitory in the Hermitage, as it had been known when privately owned. It looked wonderful, with wood panelling and vivid murals of ancient Ireland, painted by the Sligo artist Bernard McDonough. The beds, however, were another matter. Sagging springs were covered by horsehair mattresses. When one tumbled into the central hollow, it felt like being in a hammock, a very hard one, as future President Mary Robinson experienced when she, too, attended the summer school. The days, however, were an endless delight. Over 200 students converge daily on Sligo Town Hall. In age, they ranged from late teenagers to the truly venerable. There were some in national costume, some in clerical dress, with the formal attire of priests, brothers or nuns, and those visiting came from many different countries, but soon mingled freely with the Yates Council and local members of the Yates Society. Days were filled with lectures and outings to places linked to the poems and plays and with the serious study of particular topics in the two-hour seminar groups. It was a total immersion course in Yeatsian scholarship from morn till evening and we reveled in the experience. 
There were no early nights, but some were later than others, especially when some students set out to visit the Sligo hermit, Bertie Anderson, a remarkable scholar who had known Yeats in days gone by and who could converse on any topic and who entertained his youthful guests into the early hours of the morning. Sometimes, too, were the late-night seances which sought to contact Yeats in person. But perhaps the poet, too, was exhausted by the intensity of his summer school as we never managed to summon him to our sessions. (laughs) That first summer school I attended in the centenary year of 1965 led on to a lifelong fascination with Yeats and with his family members. John Butler Yeats, the prodigal father. Fierce William Pollocksvin, the sailor grandfather. Lily and Lolly, the sisters who ran the cooler press and industries. And Jack, the shy boy who loved Sligo so much that he included something of it in all of his paintings. W.B. Yeats, our national poet, is recognised all over the world, as important today as he ever was. Like Shakespeare, he wrote not for an age, but for all time. I cannot remember exactly when I first came across the poems of W.B. Yeats. It must have been during my school days at Mount Sion in Waterford, where I was lucky to have a very talented teacher, Sean Crow, who instilled in his pupils a real love of literature. I do have irrefutable evidence of an early investment in Yeats, for my copy of his collected poems is dated... January 1976. It was purchased, I remember, with a book token given to me by my parents that Christmas. It was probably unusual, even in those days, for a 20-year-old to want to possess a hardback volume by a poet who had been dead for almost four decades. No book of mine has been longer in my possession. The irresistible cultural heroes of my youth were the Beatles and Bob Dylan. But there was something about Yeats's work that won me over. At that time, I hardly knew what it was. I now think I do. And I remember when the veil of mystery started to lift and my engagement with Yeats began to deepen. It was when I first left Ireland. I was 24 when I arrived in India at the start of my life as a representative of Ireland, a 35-year journey that has taken me also to Vienna, Brussels, Edinburgh, Kuala Lumpur, Berlin, and now to London. I have found Yeats to be a fruitful travelling companion. I remember reading his poems in my early months in India as I grappled with the novel experience of being distant from home and family. 
Down by the Sally Gardens was one of my rescue routes whenever a song was called for. Yitz's words had an ability to conjure up Ireland for me, even from afar. I read he wishes for the cloths of heaven at our wedding reception in a beautiful garden in New Delhi, having introduced my Australian wife, Greta, to our national poet's work from the early days of our relationship. Not every young woman would have been impressed by such behaviour, but Greta took it in her stride. Later, we printed a cradle song on the card sent to announce the birth of our daughter, Tara. I sigh that kiss you, for I must own that I shall miss you when you have grown. Tara now has a framed print of that poem in her own home, and her daughter Alice will grow up with those words around her. I also discover that Yeats's work provided a precious connection with India, where so many people I met admired his work. Its combination of mysticism and romantic nationalism seemed to appeal to the Indian soul. Yeats also provided an insightful introduction to the Irish past, and that is the quality that has sustained my lifelong interest in his work. It has been part of my life's mission to explain Ireland to people of different backgrounds and interests. This requires a knowledge of Ireland and a vocabulary with which to tell our story. I have found our literature to be a rich resource, an aid to understanding our country's complexities, past and present. For me, Yeats provides a first-class primer on Ireland, our landscape, our people, our history and our mythology. His work has opened doors for me. In front of 1,500 Indian teachers at a conference in New Delhi in 1982 and with Australian Yeats enthusiasts on the banks of Perth's Swan River a few years later. These are just a few of the places around the world where I have travelled with Yeats's words as wings. This year, I have been tweeting a daily Yeats quote. I have read from my 40-year-old book of Yeats's poems at literary festivals in Oxford, Newbury and elsewhere. When I am asked to choose my favourite line from Yeats, my answer is, but one man loved the pilgrim's soul in you. It was written when he was still a young man, but the line contains a wisdom that I find hard to beat. And now that I am myself a 60-year-old smiling public man, I fully intend to take Yeats's advice and let soul clap its hands and sing and louder sing for every tatter in its mortal dress. Last year, my old Yeats volume was looking more than a little tattered, but Greta rescued it, had it rebound, so that it can continue to travel with me. I have it to hand as I speak these words, and bending down beside the glowing bars, murmur a little sadly how love fled and paced upon the mountains overhead and hid his face amid a crowd of stars.
Down by the Sally Gardens, my love and I did meet. She passed the Sally Gardens with little... This morning's programme, first broadcast in 2015, was recorded in Drumcliff Church in Sligo as part of the Tread Softly Festival. It was produced by Aoife Cormac. The readings were The Wandering Childhood of W.B. Yeats by Brian Layden. Sitting Down to Breakfast with Yeats was by Meg Harper. Mullinashi by Joe McGowan. The Yeats Centenary 1965 was by Stella Mew and My Travels with WB by Dan Mulhall. The songs were The Song of Wandering Angus, The Drinking Song and Down by the Sally Gardens, all with words by Yeats and all sung by Mary MacPartlin with Aidan Brennan on guitar. We also heard Salut d'Amour by Elgar, played by Neve Crowley on violin and Anna Houston on cello. And The Strayaway Child, composed by Michael Gorman and played by Oshin MacDiarmada on fiddle and Damien Stenson on flute. This year's Tread Softly Festival is actually starting tomorrow and it's going to be a mix of live and online events. For more on that, have a look at treadsoftly.ie. And if you're interested in that, you might like to know about a new free app. It's called Yates Unwrapped and it's just been released to promote the Yates trails all around Sligo. And you can get that wherever you find your apps or at yatessociety.com. It's called Yates Unwrapped. Sunday Miscellany's broadcast coordinator is Carolyn Dempsey and the producer is Sarah Binchy. RTE Radio 1 You've been listening to the Sunday Miscellany podcast. For more from us, you can follow the programme on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany.